You're listening to the Future of Finance podcast by UK Finance, a series exploring the latest trends in financial services, how they're changing, and how firms can equip themselves to face the challenges of tomorrow. On the 16th of March 2020, the United Kingdom went into its first lockdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic. As we all know, 2020 was a year like no other, with COVID-19 severely impacting sectors in every corner of the globe. Going into full lockdown meant that organisations were left to reorganise the way they conducted business, and employees were left to adapt to a full work-from-home approach. Most, if not all, organisations relied on the use of a third-party service to ensure operational continuity, with this opening a pathway for cyber criminals who were then able to exploit vulnerabilities not initially considered as part of third-party resilience or business continuity planning. We can say this, while we debated the origin of the coronavirus, another virus was making its way rapidly across our sector. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Oge Odensi, Principal Cybersecurity here at UK Finance. And today with me to explore this topic are industry experts, Scott Register and Vincent Payne. Scott, could you please introduce yourself? Yes, thank you. Okay, I'm Scott. I'm uh, Vice President of Security Solutions here at Keysight Technologies. Uh, we're a technology company that helps our engineering and enterprise and service provider customers accelerate innovation to connect and secure the world. And what this means is we help them guarantee security and re- resilience in new solutions that, that basically people are, are bringing out and putting on the market. And I help to launch new products in that space. So thank you. Thanks, Scott. Vincent, could you please introduce yourself? Hello. Hi, I'm Vincent Payne. I'm the uh, Director of Technology and Services at Arrow in the UK. Uh, We provide technology solutions into the uh, finance sector in the UK. Thank you, Vincent. And thank you both for being here with me today. I've just given a brief view of what has happened since lockdown, and more so some of the supply chain cyber attacks that have plagued the financial sector. More recently, and on a larger scale, a colonial pipeline cyber attack was discovered in the US with significant impact on other suppliers. Scott, I'm very interested to know what supply chain cyber attacks or cyber attacks with an impact on suppliers do you believe has had the greatest effect on your clients? That's a great question and a good time to ask it. This is, the last few months have been sort of dismally exciting in the, <laughs> in the security space. Uh, you know, the downside is we've seen really two of the largest, most publicized and, and most impactful cyber attacks ever, right? On the upside, I think they are helping to bring some some focus to some fields that of, of security that, that people had not necessarily thought about. And uh, this is a great chance to, to talk about them and how they, they come together. Going back to, you know, around Christmas, uh, we saw the, the supply chain attacks on solar winds, right? Where, uh, you know, uh, hackers, Russian, uh, were able to plant malware in, uh, in a, a software update that lots of customers, you know, nearly 20,000 customers downloaded. And so they had you now malware in their networks, which could, which could later uh, be exploited. And then in the recent colonial pipeline attack, and, you know, as we're recording this, literally gas supply to the U.S. eastern seaboard is still disrupted. That illustrated the convergence of IT 
uh, our traditional, you know, what we think of as email and web and database and that kind of stuff that normally falls under the maybe the, the CISO and OT or operational technologies. Um, the attack in this case against Colonial was a pretty typical standard ransomware attack, you know, the kind of thing we see literally every day, but it had knock on effects that to prevent sort of spread of, you know, malware throughout their, their critical systems, Colonial took a lot of stuff offline, which was a very prudent move, but it meant that half of the fuel supply for the East Coast of the US just went away, disappeared, right? And so that, that's a great illustration. You know, these two attacks are a great illustration of two things. One, we really have to understand what our supply chain is. Like what are the external vendors that supply the things that we need to run our business? Not just physical components, but all the stuff that, you know, that we need to, to stay up and running. And then the, the crossover between our traditional IT and the, these operational uh, systems, right? And so our customers have certainly had to, you know, and, and certainly in finance uh, and, and other, have had to suddenly wake up because you, you can no longer ignore or say, oh, this really won't happen. Um, and this has forced, you know, these events along with, with new regulations and things like that have really forced an awareness of, of customers to think about, okay, what are the critical parts of my business? What are my, you know, important business services? What are the, the components, you know, could be physical, could be software, either to build and supply those products or even just to keep my my company going. And this expands again, way beyond the traditional, what we think of as IT services to the other things that we need to keep our business running, whether it's banking machines or pipelines or video surveillance systems, uh, et cetera. So our customers are really taking a much closer look at that um, now. So these two coming only, you know, four months apart have had, I think a huge, you know, impact on, on, uh, on the industry. Thanks very much, Scott, for that. You mentioned taking stuff offline is probably a prudent way to, to halt an attack, but it does have knock-on effect on your business. It does have knock-on effect on your third-party suppliers. So it's very important for, for businesses to not only understand you know, how to manage the impact, but also how to ensure continuity of business in the event of a cyber attack. Now, I want to get a bit more specific here. With regards to the solar winds attack that we've talked about just now, what have you done to manage this impact on your clients? And perhaps how have your clients learned from the lessons? Great question. So, and I'll, I'll answer those in reverse order. So what our customers I think have, have learned is that even if you do everything quote right, you keep your software up to date. For uh, example, bad things can still happen to you. You know, one of the the kind of nasty, ironic twists of the SolarWinds attack was the customers who were impacted were those who were diligent about keeping their software up to date. And what they weren't expecting was for malware to be embedded in a software update. So even if you do everything right, you have to assume that bad actors can get inside your network, right? So that's a great lesson. Now, once you've made that assumption, once you've kind of crossed that, that mental bridge to assume that that can happen, 
well, now what do we do? And so there's this con there are concepts like zero trust, where anything that's on your network, you give it the least amount of access and least amount of privilege necessary. You also uh, learn now, and this is where we help, that you have to be able to monitor everything in your network. And so we make like visibility systems that make sure that there are no dark corners of your network where bad things can happen, where let's say malware can spread from one user's laptop where they picked up something bad when they were at a coffee shop and then brought it into the network and then it uh it spread bad guys are going to come at your network there's nothing you can do to stop that and so you need to attack your own network and systems and laptops etc so that whatever vulnerabilities are there and i promise you that there are some you will find before the bad guys do. And this is this is somewhere else that, that Keysight helps is we provide those security testing systems along with the network visibility systems that that you know our customers can use to help them stay ahead of the hackers and to you know when something bad happens to find it very quickly. Thanks, Scott. Uh, one thing that you mentioned is least amount of access and privilege, which I think is very important, especially in our businesses today. Looking at the cyber threat landscape, and even more recently, we've seen an uptake in third-party and supply chain cyber attacks. A key example would be the identification and exploitation of vulnerabilities with our third-party suppliers. Vincent, what would you say are the key areas firms must consider in their dealings with their third-party suppliers? And perhaps could you, could you give us key examples of how this would work in reality? Yeah, sure, okay. So, well, firstly, you know, financial firms need to ensure their suppliers meet the criteria set by the various policies defined by the different regulatory uh, authorities, and also that it matches their own policies around risk compliance. So here at Arrow, you know, we, we, we sort of supply and distribute a wide range of technologies um, into the financial sector through our partners, um, and our partners are varied, you know, they're resellers, SIs, MSPs, and they all do different things in terms of either product supply, wrapping that product into some kind of service, or maybe building some kind of software. And as Scott mentioned, you know, we need to think about all the areas of uh, potential compromise, you know, whether it's hardware, software, cloud, application development, and absolutely operational technology. So I think things to consider, um, you know, firstly, companies need to, you know, vet the suppliers and review contracts, consider defining reasonable levels of security and associated controls, you mentioned access earlier. Think about how they work with subcontractors, vendors, and make sure that they exceed, you know, these um, these policies that they, they should have in place. Also, you know, I think given the amount of potential compromise, you know, sharing threat intelligence and indicators across the sector would be a, a great thing to do to so help solve some of these problems because the sheer cost and time it takes to sort of rectify some of these problems is incredible. You know, and there's been some talk about creating a platform to increase, you know, the, uh, the financial sector resilience. So working together really to assess, you know, what the third party uh, and the vendors are, are doing, because quite often there are, there are a number of shared suppliers. Uh, thank you very much, Vincent. Um, you, you talked a lot around, you know, meeting criteria set by policy, being able to define those policies um, with relation to your supply chain and, and your cybersecurity capabilities. And I, I want to sort of go back to you, Scott. 
we know that the solar wind cyber attack, which happened in December of 2020, was because of an infected software update. And just previously, you talked about where keeping software up to date is not enough as part of lessons learned for your clients. My question is this. What happens when the software update is corrupt and updating your software enables a vulnerability in your environment? That is to say, when you have done all due diligence, but it makes no difference to your cyber resilience. I, I would uh, sort of argue with the wording of that question. And I think that cyber resilience goes way beyond sort of that outer shell prevention, right? Resilience specifically means how well can you respond to an attack, right? To, to adverse conditions. So it is true that customers who, you know, downloaded a software update were doing the right thing. They were doing their due diligence. They were following all the recommendations and keeping their, their software updated. But I would say that the ones who had gone beyond simple, you know, kind of virus checking and keeping software up to date, et cetera, were much better positioned to respond to um, this kind of attack. So we, we discussed earlier the principle of zero trust where anything on your network has minimal access. Well, one of the reasons that that's very important in this case um, is even if you had loaded the Orion software on a server, if you truly were enforcing zero trust uh, on your network, you would say, okay, this Orion server can only get to the systems it's controlling on my network and get to like its update server. And it can't go make sort of random DNS queries or random connections out to other servers on the internet. So if you were enforcing zero trust on your network in this case, even if you got the, the malware on that server or the, the, the corrupted firmware or software update on the server, it could not have spread. It could not have downloaded the additional kind of malware that it needed to do bad things to, you know, encrypt disks or steal data uh, or whatever. I would also say that part of resilience is uh, the visibility part that we talked about earlier, you know, making sure that when something happens on your network, whatever it is, you can see it. So in the SolarWinds Orion case specifically, if you were monitoring your DNS traffic and you were able to look for uh, anomalous connections or anomalous DNS requests from all the servers in your network, then you could quickly flag, oh, something strange is going on here. And so I need to maybe disconnect the server, look into it, et cetera. But you would, you would uh, be alerted that there's something going on. And furthermore, if you had done you know, testing of your anti-malware systems, your network visibility systems, your even your, your SOC team and the personnel who you know control all of your security systems and then monitor the SIM, you know, the, the tool in your network that all the alert messages bubble up to so that they can quickly spot, oh, here's the indicators of compromise. I see suspicious looking things. I need to go track this down. I would say that all of those things contribute to resilience. So it's it, you know, resilience doesn't end with just Oh, I've set up a strong perimeter and now I hope nothing happens. It goes far beyond that too. Okay, I know I'm going to be attacked. I know something bad will happen. I know something bad can get inside my network. So given that reality, how do I respond and minimize the, the damage to the network, repair it quickly and get things back online? Does that make sense? 
Thanks, God. That definitely does make sense. I want to follow on from what you've just mentioned. You talked about indicators of compromise, which is something I picked upon. Um, now, I want to follow up on this and ask, how can firms define indicators of compromise and how can they build this into their, their operations and into their technology environment? Oh, okay. So in the financial sector specifically, there are industry forums like the FSCCC and FSISAC that specifically share threat information, right? So this is a really good thing. I mean, if one of the reasons that, that we formed like these kinds of industry cons consortiums is we used to think that security through obscurity was a thing. And if we got hacked or someone was trying to hack us, we would try to keep it a secret because we didn't want, I don't know, bad reputation or, you know, whatever it is. Now, I, I think we've, we've, to a large degree, maybe not universally evolved beyond that, we realize that everyone's going to get attacked. I mean, if you're on the internet, someone's going to try to attack you. And the way that we can all stay safer is by sharing information. And so this is, this is a really good thing to do is, you know, we coordinate with government agencies, with industry consortiums to share things like, oh, I would, you know, maybe the first person falls victim, but then you report, oh, these are the things that they did. This is the malware that they use. Here are the things I saw on the network and their, you know, standard interchange formats uh, for this data, like sticks and taxi. And so now we can share that information. And so let's say that a particular threat actor is conducting attacks against financial services organizations, we can share those indicators of, of compromise. And then there are, you know, lots of different sort of threat intelligence tools, threat intelligence platforms, and, and things that let you feed um, these indicators of, of compromise, you know, this threat intelligence into your SIM or your control systems, et cetera, to help you quickly recognize the signs of malicious activity on your network. Thank you so much, Scott. That that really makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it links how do we identify these threats and how do we act on it and how do we maintain, like you like you said, um, resilience as being a combination of different activities and not just, you know, monitoring and not just uh, protecting or responding to a cyber attack. Most, if not all, organizations within the financial sector have a threat intelligence team and or a security operating center. From experience, this can be in-house or outsourced to a third-party service provider. However, we seem to be very popular at being reactive. And when I mean we, I mean the financial sector, as opposed to being proactive, especially with identifying and managing cyber threats. Um, Scott, how do we learn from breaches like the SolarWinds attack? Now, what is next in the world of proactive cyber threat identification and testing? Great question. So in terms of identification, I think actually a lot of that goes back to the previous question about understanding indicators of compromise, applying threat intelligence to your network. Um, as we discussed earlier, having um, ubiquitous visibility across all of your digital assets, whether it's user laptops at home when they're connecting in, whether it's you know IT assets, whether it's your operational technologies, again, like video surveillance uh, systems, making sure you have you know monitoring capabilities in place and, and alerting for all those so that you can quickly you know spot things. Now on the testing side, this this is really exciting because a few years ago there we really didn't have great ways to test security 
controls, uh, firewalls and IDS and endpoint security and things like that in production environments. We could do it in lab environments, but there wasn't really a good way to do that like on a production network so that you, it was very hard to test um, the kind of security systems as deployed. And this is unfortunate because maybe in a lab you set up everything and it works perfectly, but the landscape changes every day, right? Your environment changes, the threat landscape changes. You connect a new supplier, you, you suddenly have everyone working remotely. There's new malware that you had never um, seen before. And so now, and this is one of the, the things I'm really excited to be doing like with our, our threat simulator product is letting customers go attack themselves using whatever the latest threats are, whatever the latest TTPs, that's uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures, that threat actors are using, you know, to come at them, and because you know that they will. One of the, I think, one of the, um, one of the things that like the SolarWinds uh, breach has highlighted for us is that it doesn't matter who you are, you are a victim, right? A lot of, let's say, the ransomware campaigns, they're very opportunistic, right? Like the the SolarWinds downstream customers. The original threat actors did not know the identities of all of SolarWinds customers. But the attack, even though it came in through SolarWinds, basically propagated then to all of those customers. And then the threat actors could basically pick and choose. Okay, 18,000 odd customers downloaded this corrupted software. I can pick and choose the ones that I go after. So even if you have a low profile, even if you're not a well-known brand name, you're just as likely to be the target of an attack as, you know, a, like a Fortune 100, right? And so that that's actually a really important realization because you can't think that you're gonna just fly below the radar. So it's really important for you to con conduct against yourself the kind of attacks that the bad guys are, I promise you, going to do so that you can find those flaws, those gaps, those weaknesses in your system uh, before they do. This sounds like a game changer for cyber threat testing being able to test in production environment and being able to attack yourself to test your defenses. Now, Scott, can you, can you please walk us through an example, perhaps using the solar winds attack of what you would do for a client or how you would help a client achieve this? Sure. When we think of a cyber attack, we break it down into stages and then we map those onto the MITRE attack framework, right? And so this is, you know, there's an initial reconnaissance phase um, and then you might uh, have an initial contact, you know, where you maybe deliver a phishing email and then the user clicks on that phishing email and they download malware into their network and then the network is there or the malware is there and then it can spread laterally uh, through the through the network. Right. So like this is something that, that we can do is we can help you emulate that entire kill chain within your network very realistically, but at no risk to you, right? Because everything is sort of self-contained between our uh, our software agents. Now, in the case of SolarWinds, this is a really interesting example because, um, because it was a well-crafted supply chain attack, the attackers were basically able to skip a lot of the first stages of the kill chain, right? Statistically, most breaches come in initially through a phishing attack. They come in through email, someone clicks on an email, they get something uh, downloaded. And that's how the initial sort of package gets into uh, the network. In the SolarWinds case, the, you know, the, the original bad stuff came in through 
what looked like an otherwise valid software update. So we can start this testing at any stage of the kill chain, and we can even break it down into, um, into steps. So we can say, okay, there's you know seven steps uh, of an attack, steps maybe one through three failed. So you've got great protection against phishing. Good for you. you know, your email security is good. But what happens if that malware still gets on your network? Someone gets it on their laptop and brings it in, or in this case, they downloaded something bad, you know, intentionally, or I guess not knowing it's bad, onto a server. So now it's there. Can it spread laterally uh, through the network? Can it go from this, you know, Orion server to other servers in your network and other laptops and things like that? And so we can help you model all of that in your network just by putting some little lightweight agents around in your network. So you can model all the stages of that kill chain and understand which ones you can detect, which ones you can block, and which ones will fly past you completely uh, undetected. Now, we also know uh, again, statistically from, you know, Gartner and the most recent Verizon data breach investigation report that most breaches are caused actually by misconfiguration. So the technology tools that we have are actually pretty good, but because there's so many of them and we have to get all the configurations right every time, it's really hard to get everything right every single day when the bad guys only have to be right once. So the idea of doing this repeatedly, continuously, you know, on a daily or weekly basis so that you can stay ahead of whatever the latest uh, malware is, is really important. But that's exactly how we would, you know, help a customer. Like we've got all the, you know, all the SolarWinds sunburst uh, attacks. So you can test your network against those and you can insert, you know, that attack at kind of any stage in the kill chain. So so you can say, okay, regardless of how it got into my network, what damage can it do? Can I detect it? Can I detect and stop the spread? So great question. Thank you. Thank you so much, Scott. This essentially means that an organization can learn lessons from another attack by replicating the stages in the kill chain and making sure that they are they have the right defenses and they have the right capabilities or to prevent against a similar attack. Thank you so much for that response. The financial sector, being one of the most regulated sectors in the UK and worldwide, has seen a growing focus from the regulators on the resilience of our third-party suppliers. We've also seen policy guidelines and supervisory statements from the EBA, European Banking Authority, the UK's PRA, Prudential Regulatory Authority, and most recently, the call for views from the UK's DCMS on third-party cybersecurity. Now, Vincent, um, I want to first touch on what Scott has just talked about with cyber threat testing, being able to test in production environment. Where do the regulators come in here and, and what do we need the regulators to know uh, with regards to this next phase uh, in, in cyber threat monitoring, cyber threat testing? So I think you know it's about maturity, really. I think the um, the greater regulation that's coming in, it's probably you know going to help the... Uh, the firms, you know, use some of the latest technology. It's going to help. Ultimately, the regulation guidelines mean mean that you know uh, the financial institutions or, or firms, um, you know, are, are are wholly, you know, responsible for for their supply chain uh, in every area around technology. So having a um, a proactive ability to um, to test, validate, uh, ensure that the that the your uh, environment isn't compromised. Um, uh, 
uh, as a supplier is, is key, you know, and I think the, the same rules apply to the, the whole, the, you know, up, up and down the supply chain, really, because there's various links to that. So I think absolutely new technologies, you know, you'll see some interesting things also around AI and ML as well, starting to um, enter into the market to help sort of uh, facilitate some of these, um, these, these solutions. Thanks, Vincent. And following on from that, we have a lot of these policies that I've mentioned on supply chain resilience that has come up recently, focused on the financial sector and also our relationships with our third party suppliers. How do you think these policies have impacted on these relationships or do you think this is a little too late? Um, I don't think it's a little too late. I think of all these things, you know, we, we, we need to have the, 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 the guidelines and regulations so that, you know, we've got good solid standards and everyone in the supply chain knows what they need to adhere to. Um, and, and providing um, and giving the, um, the, the, the firms the um, requirement to, you know, take a good look at their supply chain is, is key. You know, the recent PRA uh, policy, uh, means that, that that they've got a, a lot of work to do in in twelve months really around defining and ensuring that the that the supply chain is safe. Um, so I think it's absolutely um, um, uh, key and 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 not too late. I think you know as these things mature, we'll probably undoubtedly see more more guidelines and regulation as time develops. Thank you very much, Vincent. You're absolutely correct. As, as we go, we, we'll see more guidelines um, develop. You know, we're seeing the DCMS looking at not just third-party cybersecurity as a whole, but breaking it down into supply chain providers, managed service providers, cloud service providers, because um, this, this all forms our supply chain uh, world and, and how we interact with you know, people that provide us with, with uh, operations in, in any way. The recent cyber attacks on major third-party suppliers with potential significant impact on the UK critical national infrastructure has shown us once again that a cyber attack is not only a financial sector problem, as we know, but poses a socio-economic threat to the country. This calls for better public-private partnerships within every sector and shines a light on the need for collaboration. Within the financial sector, the Financial Sector Cyber Collaboration Centre, FSCCC, is the go-to for sector-wide cyber incident management and reporting. A trusted circle where cyber threats and incidents are reported, solutions agreed, and position and impact is understood. Scott, when you talked about how we can identify indicators of compromise, you mentioned partnerships and you mentioned you know, the public-private partnerships especially. I want to ask you this. If you had a crystal ball and you were looking ahead a year from now, where would you see the significant changes in the cyber threat landscape? And how can we as a trade body, how can we as Keysight, how can we get ahead of these changes? That's a, that's a good question. My, the crystal ball can be a little fuzzy, but I mean, so in terms of specific attacks, you know, the the, the one constant is change, right? I mean, the, the, here are like these two recent examples Six months ago, if you had said, oh, yeah, this, you know, one hacker can take down, you know, the gas supply for the U.S. or can impact, you know, 20,000 customers, including finance and governments globally, no one might have believed you. Right. So I, but uh, one of the things that is very clear is that threat actors are becoming much more sophisticated. They're very well funded. They're often um, state 
either sponsored or they're operating with at least tacit approval of uh, of governmental agencies. One of the really kind of wicked things about this, uh, often, you know, hackers get paid in, in uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, right? Uh, which has skyrocketed in value over the last year. So the money that they made or the cryptocurrency they made last year is worth a lot more now, which means they can fund even like larger and more sophisticated campaigns and they can afford to be uh, a little more patient. So you can expect sort of the, the, the pace and more important, the sophistication of attacks to only uh, increase. However, one of the a sort of, you know, sort of happy outcomes of these uh, attacks and also just the governmental and industry consortium like FSCCC responses and like increased awareness. I think this is actually a really good time. I mean, with with uh, like the SS221, you know, the, the guidelines on outsourcing and risk management and, and forcing us to really think about supply chains, right? And how these, um, you know, how external vendors can influence our business and our customers and forcing us to codify the impact of cyber threats on our businesses and those we sell to, whether it's, you know, end users or, you know, whether our organizations are just in the supply chain. And recently, just yesterday, we saw a new uh, executive order from the U.S. administration uh, improving or, or tightening cybersecurity guidelines and using like the purchasing power of the U.S. government to improve supply chain security. So slightly different approach. But, you know, so now we're seeing government action. We're seeing, you know, industry regulatory action, which helps to focus, you know, kind of our attention and frankly helps security practitioners to get funding to go do this because at the end of the day, you can have great intentions, but if your efforts aren't funded, then they don't happen. So this is actually a good time to take advantage of kind of the rapid improvements in technology and, you know, kind of security tools, uh, like like the new, you know, our in-production security testing capabilities that, that we mentioned earlier and apply those to our networks to kind of take advantage of this heightened focus and heightened awareness and sort of public awareness of what the threats are to, I think, take some really big steps forward in, in improving the overall security of an organization by improving not only its traditional IT assets, but its third-party supply chain and its entire extended, you know, digital asset world, which again includes the uh, the operational technology. So, you know, the crystal ball says the attackers get better, but we're much more public and have a much more concerted effort now to do industry-wide improvements in information sharing, in testing, and in kind of standardization of our and, and codification of our kind of plans and, and responses. So I think it's actually, there's actually some good news here. Thank you very much, Scott. I, I do agree. There is good news here. You know, pace of sophistication is definitely will be on the rise, but also our ability to get ahead in a collaborative way will also be better than it is now. And so we'll be able to respond better. We'll be able to test better. Um, and we'll be able to, sort of get ourselves in a position where you know, the cyber threat landscape is not, we're not being reactive to the threat landscape, we're being proactive. 
touching on specifically FSCCC, Vincent, what would the impact of an initiative like FSCCC be on the financial sector? And what more can we do from a supply chain angle? Well, look, I think it's a great initiative. You know, um, it should have a real positive effects on building you know, greater cyber resilience in the UK across the financial sector. Um, hopefully its membership will grow as well. So, you know, if we can share more experiences, you know, really understand and be proactive around identifying threats, investigating and mitigating them, I think it's a, you know, a, a real key thing moving forwards. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those sort of things of breaking down old barriers of communication and guarded response. So I think if we can if we can get that working properly, I think that would be a really positive outcome for, for all, really. Thank you so much, Vincent. I'll turn to you now, Scott. What will the impact of an initiative like FSCCC be? Um, and, and where do you see this growing uh, in the next year or so? I think one of the really sort of positive impacts here is helping the industry to mature, right? Uh, one of the... the topics, you know, Vincent mentioned what was maturity and thinking about how how we are maturing in, in the cybersecurity industry. And um, one of the ways that you know that you're really an amateur at something is you don't know the questions to ask, right? You don't even know where to start. One of the things that, you know, like SS221 does is it forces you to enumerate your important business services and those are well codified, you know, it explains very well what an important business service is. And then you have to think very hard about uh, the third party suppliers that can impact delivery of those important business services, and then develop a stressed exit plan. And that means if one of those third party suppliers fails in some way, what do you do? What's your uh, recovery plan? And so this is a great way to sort of think about, okay, what are all of the services, those important services that I provide? What are the third party things that, that can impact that? And the recent breaches, right? What have we been talking about today? Solar winds and the colonial pipeline breach. Those really help us to expand our kind of understanding of those, let's say supply chain risks. We might not have originally thought, oh, that a corruption of my network management software could impact the delivery of like people's paychecks. But that's exactly what happened in the SolarWinds uh, attack. And so it, this these incidents coupled with like the new guidelines mean we have to understand what our important business services are and document those and then think very holistically about the supply chain, all those third party suppliers that impact delivery of that even fairly broad sort of IT implications. Now, when you couple that with the, like the colonial pipeline attack, we realize, oh, the, that supply chain can include not only sort of mainstream IT stuff like your email supplier, but operational technologies as well. You know, we mentioned earlier things like um, external networks that you might connect to for payment processing or for automated banking machines or video surveillance systems, all of those things can be very important and even critical in delivery of your important business services. And so having to think through sort of uh, enumerating those, understanding what the risks are and, and having a plan in place to do, uh, you know, what happens if one of those fails, that stretched exit plan. Um, this is a great sort of forcing function to, to make us grow up as an industry and really think hard about these problems so that when they inevitably happen, we're in a much better position to, to be resilient and respond to them. 
Thank you so much, Scott, for that. And like you said, FSCCC does not only look at, you know, the big organizations who have maybe figured this out, but it, it also forces the smaller organizations to think about why are we not asking these questions? What are the questions that we are expected to ask? And how do we get more mature in that way, forcing maturity? Thank you so much for being here with me. We have barely scratched the surface of cybersecurity and supply chain. And I want to thank our speakers, Scott and Vincent, for coming along and doing this topic justice. If you would like to know more about our speakers, you can reach Scott on scott.register at keysight.com or on Twitter at swregister and Vincent at vincent.pain at arrow.com. If you'd like to know more about how UK Finance continue to support members with navigating their third-party and supply chain resilience, please go to ukfinance.org.uk. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the UK Finance Future of Finance podcast. For more information, please visit ukfinance.org.uk forward slash podcasts.